The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Britain is one of the most urbanised and least wooded countries in Europe. It's lost almost half of its biodiversity since the 1970s. Our grandchildren are unlikely to know a green and pleasant land. And we're paying the price. Air pollution is killing up to 36,000 people a year. Raw sewage is destroying our rivers. And the demand for new houses often means shoddy building on land that's subject to flooding. And intensively cultivated farmland, almost 72% of the land area, means what's left of the natural habitat is shrinking fast. We aren't treating our country well. So what about handing some of it back, letting what we don't need revert to nature, allowing the ecosystem to heal itself? That's the idea that is rewilding. New age woolly thinking, hopelessly romantic and impractical. Don't we need to use what we've got to feed and house ourselves? Or is it the best and most effective way to restore our land, to make it a place we might actually want to live in? That's our subject today on The Y Curve. Brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So about the idea that, you know, the country being a place that we actually want to live in, I mean, the English countryside, I mean, as it is, is quite beautiful. And a lot of that is man-made beauty. Listeners, let me tell you, there is an arched eyebrow (laughs) over there. Even the concept of rewilding is alien to Mr Dobby. No, well, I do like the countryside, but I I do feel as though, you know, a lot of what we have in in the UK uh, is, you know, pretty beautiful countryside anyway, but it is man-made. It's farmland. Well, there's always a human impact. There's no avoiding that. Mm. And that's something I want to bring up because I think the point is it isn't. There's a sense in which it's going back to nature or allowing nature to do what nature does, but we know that we can't have this place as it was before humankind ever set foot uh, on this scepter dial. So I I don't think that's the object. I think it's, it's more to do with simply letting some parts of it Go back to something that approximates to what it was before we damaged it. Right. I think it is damage we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, but, but with the damage, I mean, I, I, I think the sentiment is fine. The damage is to a great extent done, of course, isn't it? And we are here. And can you, can you draw boundaries and say, well, this bit's going to be wild. It's just on the outskirts of Birmingham. Uh, I'm sure that the spillover well, of pollution from Birmingham is not going to have any impact. No, on I, it, think, I think the point is, it's, it's part. Of, it's not on its own. It's part of a whole process, and there are attempts, obviously, to restrict our carbon emissions for which a whole different thing which is to do of course with climate change but there is also this sense that partly it's aesthetic obviously we like to look at something that looks more like we think nature made it i mean we very rarely stand back and say what a beautiful uh, apartment block or something of that no nature. but we do you know we could go up to the lake district and look at the the farmers fields and you know it's all a man-made environment. You yes, know it's yes. you know it's, and most of our most of the land full of has, evil chemicals that are doing all kinds well, of things. Yeah, well, okay, maybe we could do less with the chemicals, but I mean it's still going to be agricultural land, which is the large part of Britain outside the cities. Yes, and it's, yes. And, and it is what makes Britain and well, all the villages built are built there because they were yeah. built around the, the farmland. But one of the arguments is that if we have intensive agriculture, intensive and advanced agriculture, we actually need less land to mm. produce the same amount of. Food. Now, mm. if that's the case, there are areas that aren't needed anymore. And right. if they aren't, 
why on earth not attempt rather than sort of landscape them or polish them up or whatever just just leave them let nature do its stuff right and because I'm being I am being deeply sceptical yeah, about all of this are. because I'm because I'm just thinking about what makes the countryside beautiful and I can see the argument for it but I mean over what you're talking about is overgrown countryside isn't it rather well, what than, you would call over oh that's overgrown you'd say but in yeah. fact it is you know that that's that's another aesthetic take on it actually it is nature taking it back again mm, and yeah. that's you know and we, we're just conditioned to see these things in particular ways but I think you have if we to want say, if you want to go back to where we were though that means forest. I mean, before well, we, I mean, yeah. before we, you know, took took control of the land, absolutely, and with well, top predators. So we'll have a bear, and we'll have a lynx, and we'll have a wolf. Yeah. Well, I well, mean, that would make going for a walk a bit more interesting on a Sunday, wouldn't it? If you get on the chance of being attacked by a lynx well, uh, while you're out in parts of Scotland, they're trying to restore the Caledonian forest. And I've interviewed people like they say, yes, you can't have a whole ecosystem without the top predators. So you know, get used to it. I mean, the fact is, in France and Spain, and Italy, become, they have brought wolves back. For but example. we have become. You know, so you'd say, well, okay. Okay, let's get a lynx because the lynx will attack the deer, and the deer are sort of attacking a menace. The, a, a menace because they're attack, they're eating up the the, mm. the shrubbery or yeah, whatever. Yeah, and they weren't there in the original setup. But we've attacked the shrubbery, you know. Yes. We've we, so you don't need to attack the deer because we've already done the damage. That well, but the you're saying it's did. like nothing can change, but it can go back. Things can mm. revert if mm. if you leave a place. I mean, you know, if you leave a uh, an area of of land to itself, just let it get on with it. After a while, yes, it looks untidy for a bit. Mm. After a while, it simply goes back to. Whatever is natural, trees growing and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I am sounding deeply sceptical, and yet, know. you know, if you look at the look at my garden, well, I am practicing exactly what they're advocating. Uh, but but yeah, who's, there was a lynx actually just walked past the window here. <laughs> so we've got a couple of links. See it from here, but Absolutely. oh no, it's been attacked by a bear. Actually, a fine, yeah, fine. That's right. Right, well, let's did, put all of this venison, to someone. Venison again for dinner tonight. <laughs> let's put all this to someone who really knows what they're talking about, and that's Alistair Driver, who's director of Rewilding. Brick. So, Alistair, my understanding then from the you know. I, I don't know a great deal about this. I have to say I'm very much on a learning curve. But this really is all about leaving land to fend for itself and let nature take its course. So how is that better than a situation where, for example, we've got agricultural land that is managed? At least it's, you know, at least you've got someone who's there. Try, I mean, OK, farmers are trying to optimize their, you know, their output. But at least, you know, if we if we are at least there's somebody looking after the land, even though they have an ulterior motive rather than having land which is just untended. Yeah, well, let, let me first of all, I'll give you a definition of rewilding, mm. a short definition. The large scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. So that immediately tells you that you're talking about a journey here. It's taking you to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. But actually, it takes a very long time to get there. Now, you, you've got two types of rewilding. You've got the passive rewilding where you, you just stop doing things straight away. Um, right. Like my, my back garden being the example. <laughs> a lot of my friends say that to me. Oh, I'm already rewilding my garden. Um, um, and, and so that's passive rewilding. And then active rewilding where you intervene to kickstart the recovery of nature, of natural processes, as we call it. So um, in this country, because you're dealing with such a low baseline, you know, we've, we've lost such a huge amount of our biodiversity uh, over the last couple of centuries, at least. Um, and because we're... Can you still hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry, my screen gave me a scare then. Um, because we've lost so much of uh, the, biodiversity, the biodiversity that we have in this in this country over the last couple of centuries. Um, and because we've got a climate emergency, a biodiversity crisis, we need to kickstart that recovery. You can't sit back and wait 100 years 
for things to return in most places. We're going to have to... But, but what about the argument, Alistair, that actually we're attempting to do something that is impossible, so we might as well use the land we've got, develop it in our way. What is the actual advantage of bringing nature back? Maybe we should simply say, well, I'm sorry about biodiversity. It's gone. We'll manage things. We'll make some nice parkland. We'll manage some nice open countryside, and that will do. Well, quite simply, if we take that approach, we are going to lose fundamental building blocks of a healthy functioning ecosystem. And we know enough now about nature to know that healthy functioning nature and ecosystems equates to a healthy economy. So, so we really are, you know, fighting a losing battle if we take that stance. Well, well just, just to dissect that, I mean, it leads to a healthy economy. I mean, Phil is a bit of an economist, and I saw him arching his eyebrow that very second. What is the link between ecology then and, and the economy? Uh, the natural envi environment provides us with incredible wealth of resources. So healthy soils, healthy water, obviously provides opportunity for us to grow uh, crops and food in certain places. And by the way, it's important to remember, we're only talking about rewilding a small percentage of the land. Uh, we will still need to produce food in abundance, but you cannot do that. You cannot do that without a healthy natural soil, water, vegetation. Second thing is lots of uh, wildlife species perform a function in terms of uh, prov prov providing food. So pollinating insects, for example, um, uh, species that produce food directly themselves, fruit, uh, nuts, etc. cetera. Um, so, so there's a huge range of contributions that nature makes to the environment which is valuable to people and don't forget we, we're talking very selfishly here about what's in it what's in it for people mm. if we continue to erode nature and we continue to uh, contribute significantly to climate warming um, partly through the way we manage our land then that will be a slippery slope for humankind so what we're saying is let's take the least productive bits of our landscape areas of landscape which are not producing food or are producing food at a loss, which you and I as taxpayers are paying for through subsidizing, why not take that, um, those areas of the landscape and maximize the biodiversity potential of them, the nature potential of them, and in so doing, and this is really, this is really important, in so doing, actually create more jobs and more opportunities for people. And what we're showing now, and we're just in the process of an annual review of this data, what we can already show is that there is at least an 80% increase in, in the jobs that are being accrued from these rewilding projects. And these are often jobs in remote rural areas. So it's all about diversification. It doesn't mean these sites are, in, are entirely ceasing their food production. They're, they're just producing slightly less food, but significantly more of the other benefits to society. So you've got an area of farmland, because, of course, in this country, almost every uh, bit of land, well, I mean, every bit of land is either owned by uh, by somebody or it's owned by the government, isn't it? Yes, so uh, if you owned by somebody, yeah, yeah. So you would have to be taking that land back or convincing the, the, the landowner to uh, to let nature take its course. Well, I'm, and, uh, I'm um, speaking to you now from a rewilding site that I'm, I privately advise in my spare time, and that's Broughton Hall Estate near Skipton in Yorkshire. This is a this is a three thousand acre estate. Uh, 
And we are rewilding approximately a thousand acres of it. The other 2000 are the more productive bits of the estate, which are still at the moment covered in sheep and mainly dairy cattle. But on the thousand acres, we are transforming that. And this is all, this is all land that is very marginal in terms of production. It produces lamb, most of which is exported from this, from this particular part of the country. We waste 40% of the food we produce to eat, and we eat too much food. So mm. we are now turning this round. We planted a quarter of a million native tree species on this site. We are now delivering flood risk benefits for leads further down river because we're slowing the flow of water off the hills and it's been absolutely transformational in terms of uh, the nature recovery just in so that, does, so that doesn't sound like rewilding that sounds like a good land planning to me well I mean, rewilding is restoring natural processes at scale and that's exactly what we're doing but we do remember what i said we're doing this in an active way you know we're actively intervening and the difference mm. the difference between rewilding and traditional nature conservation and by the way you know i'm 45 years now in this career and for the first 40 years or so, I was just doing traditional nature conservation, creating nature reserves, restoring rivers, creating wetlands. And it was great. And that's all really valuable. And I'm really proud to have been associated with it. But it, on its own, it's not enough. You need much bigger scale stuff. And the difference between that traditional conservation and this rewilding is that with traditional conservation, you carry on intervening to keep that particular area in the state you created it you wanted it to be so you so, so that's very interesting you talk about constantly intervening so yeah. you don't you're walk managing, away from this you're managing it whereas in a rewilding landscape you let nature lead so you kickstart that recovery and then over time you relax and you let nature decide what it wants and where it wants it so there definitely comes a moment in rewilding where you where you simply do not go there anymore, at least in terms of management. In an, in an ideal sort of purist rewilding situation, yes. We probably won't get to the top of that rewilding spectrum in most sites in Britain because we don't have native apex predators. Mm. Missing well, links. We're, we're, we're talking about the links and how I wasn't going to look forward well, to a Sunday walk. If uh, well, if the odd wolf or bear, I'm sure, wouldn't be a problem. But are you saying? Are you actually ruling all that out and saying there is no remote prospect, even in I don't know the north of Scotland, of having wolves, bears, lynxes back? I'm not sure we'll see bears back in ecological terms. You know, I'm not an expert on bears, but but you know, theoretically, you could have wolves in Scotland if we were joined to the continent we would have wolves because they've walked back into pretty much every other country on the continent. They're in Denmark, they're in the Netherlands, Belgium, France, of their own accord. But because we're an island, that that's, means a massive societal step to take. And, and uh, it'll take a very long time for that to happen in the wild. You will see links back, probably, you know, uh, within 10 to 20 years, I think we'll have links back. You know, and links are not a threat to people at all. They are... You know, there are no, there's no evidence of any lynx attacks at all in Europe. Um, uh, they will mainly feed on deer, and we, we could actually do with natural predation of deer because we've got more deer in this country than ever in history because they don't have natural predators and we're not shooting them as much as we used to. So, so what I think is, you will so see what, links back, yeah. So the, the estate that you have partially dewilded then. Rewild, so what is rewilded? Sorry, exact, sorry, the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, that you've rewilded. What what is the the benefit to to those estate owners? What what are they getting out of it? Well, what they're what they're losing is the grazing license income in this particular case. What they are gaining 
is the opportunity for, uh, well, A, to be leaving their, their land in a better state for the future, um, which is actually something virtually all, yeah, all the private landowners I deal with, they are doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do. That's the first thing to say. The second mm. thing is that they are usually, uh, usually doing it so that, so that there is some link to other activity. And in this particular example, they are looking at um, well-being activities. So they have a well-being center on the state and getting people out there immersed in healthy nature, as we know, is very valuable for mental health and also for you know, physical health, you know. So, so a kind of tourism can work with but this. Not, uh, you like know. touch nature tourism is a quite a common uh, associated activity on rewilding sites. Some landowners because there's a, there's, a, there's a place in Sussex, quite a famous place, book written about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. where this exactly happened and people do go. It's it's yeah. a thing they pay to go and see it. Yeah, and uh, approximately a third to a half of the private rewilding sites are embracing some form of nature tourism. Um, and then you have the NGO, you know, environmental organizations own rewilding sites, and they are often bringing people in, educational activities, et cetera. Um, and then there are, there are other things associated with diversified income, you know, niche food products, you know, some of them really major on honey production, for example, because they've suddenly got huge amount of pollinating opportunities for bees. Um, some go for wild food foraging. Now, on their own, these individual things do not enable the landowner to make a living. But when you start to multiply them up, um, that plus uh, funding that one can secure from government sources and philanthropic funding and private funding, that means that actually you've got your eggs in several baskets and you can make it work. And that's exactly what NEP has proven over the last 20 years, that they, they can actually make it financially significantly more viable than it was when it was just farmed. So do you think the idea of subsidies for farmers should be abolished if, if a farm is not able to uh, make enough money to sustain itself, then th that that farmland should just be let go of? And oh, no, I, I, don't, to, uh, I don't support that theory, certainly not in the short term. What should happen is what hopefully is happening, and that is that we're moving from just paying farmers um, based on the amount of land they have um, – uh, to mm. or, or or the number of animals they have, switching to paying them for delivering these public benefits. Uh, you know, yeah, because that's very much part of the government's part of the plan. Or Michael Gove announced yeah. uh, this whole idea. Yeah, that's right. Of a and new I, concept. What, what I so just to finish the answer to that question about should they be abolished? What I what I firmly believe is we need to we need to move to this public money for public goods approach, which is how it's summarised. And, and at the same time as we do that, we should be embracing more and more private funding. And that is indeed what is happening. You're getting biodiversity offsetting, carbon offsetting, you're getting credit schemes, getting nutrient offsetting. There's all sorts of these private and biodiversity net gain through planning. There are all these initiatives which are just starting to get going, which are drawing private finance into this world. And what I expect to see is that we will become less and less reliant on public subsidy. 
with more and more private finance coming in where businesses and communities realize that it's in their interest to be surrounded by a healthy environment, particularly upstream, uh, where you're going to reduce flood risk and improve water quality for mm. them. And I, and, and I see in time, I genuinely believe that in time we will be less reliant on subsidies. Right. Look, uh, well, let's talk a bit more about the money, but also the, just the scale of it all as well. Yeah, when, and the when, concept of where you're trying to get to. Yeah, we'll look at all of that when we come back. Thanks, Alistair. It's been interesting. Thank you. Well, there is this fantastic mobile phone app, Roger, where I can buy shares and then I can sell them when I want and see how much money I'm making. It's and brilliant. how much are you making? Well, OK, I'm not making much. You so are losing money, aren't you? Well, uh, losing a little bit of money. Yeah, a yeah. little. Mm, I think you mean a lot. Yeah, actually, uh, quite a lot. Yes. So, so why do you think that is? Well, I suspect it's because you don't know what you're doing. Well... There is that, I suppose. And are shares the best option? Are there mm. other things you could be buying? And, and how are you buying them? Well, I'm buying them through this app. That but about. should you be putting money into your pension to minimise tax, for example, and make your investment through pension rather than in post-tax pounds? Well, I don't know. Should I? I don't know. I'm just asking the question. Right. OK. Well... Who has the answers? I'll tell you who. Wigmore Associates. Oh, of course, those people who actually sponsor this podcast. The very same. Put your wealth management in their hands because unlike you, they don't just rely on a mobile phone app. And unlike you, they know what they're talking about. That's a bit harsh. Well, you can find them. Wigmore-associates.co.uk Now, hang on, Roger. I am channeling a number. It's coming to me. Hang on a second. It is 272 Three four zero zero. I don't know where that number came from. It well, just came that, to me. That just, is that just amazing. Okay. Actually, amazing because that actually happens to be their phone number. Oh, there we are. Well, amazing. So you see, I am good with numbers. Then not when there's money involved. Clearly. Anyway, you get in touch with Wigmore Associates. They'll sort you out. The Y curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Okay, Alistair Driver is our special guest on the YKF this week. He's director of Rewilding Britain. We, we, we were talking just before the break about public money for public goods, but maybe uh, we, we're going to need less public money and there'll be more private sector investment. But, I mean, until we get there, I mean, just how much money are we talking about? What's the scale that we were talking about? To, for this to be effective, for example, you know, what percentage of land would we need to see being rewilded in, in, in Britain? Because it's pretty piecemeal at the moment, obviously. Well, yeah, I mean, we uh, rewild in Britain, we've got an ambition for 5% core rewilding, where, you know, you're a long, quite a long way up the spectrum. So it's dominate, you know, nature, nature recovery is the primary purpose. Mm. Now, in the absence of native herbivores that we once had, which are extinct, like the aurochs, which is the ancient cattle, and the absence of elk and beaver and boar in most places, we, we will need, still need some grazing animals in that landscape, and that will be rare breed cattle and pigs, which are trying to, as close as you can, replicate the kind of impact that that those formerly native species had. So you're not right at the top of the spectrum, but we'd like to see 5% of the, the country where the nature is the primary purpose. Right. You so easily, what is it? You could so 5%, do that. and that is, that's the entire uh, surface of Great Britain. Britain. Yeah, land and you can easily yeah. do that without impacting on food. Productive yeah. farmland. We we're mapping that at the moment, and we're comfortably 
we can comfortably show that. Would that amount, I mean, we're talking about trying, in a sense, to restore something, but given what you're saying about the amount it would be, the vast majority of the country would obviously not be in that state. And in the nature of ecological environments affecting each other, surely whatever you're trying to achieve in that 5% is going to be affected by what's in the rest of it, the 95%, where they'll be using chemicals and all sorts of things. So, So what we also want to see... And this is this this is where the phrase this links to the phrase thirty by thirty, which you probably heard. That's thirty percent of the land by twenty thirty in in a, basically in a state that is good for nature, recovering condition for nature. Now that's a that's a phrase that's banded around by governments and by environmental organisations. And what we what we're saying is that we'd like to see five percent core rewilding, and then another 25%, making up the 30%, where nature-friendly land uses uh, with sustainable food production and sustainable uh, forestry, et cetera, are integral. And if you had that, if you had that other 25% buffering and connecting these core rewilding areas, we are absolutely certain you could you could turn around the biodiversity crisis and significantly tackle uh, the climate climate emergency through mitigating the impacts of, of flood risk, uh, etc. So so that's the kind of scale we're talking about. And just to put it in perspective, at the moment, seventy percent of the land is farmed, including yeah. a, you know a significant percentage that is farmed un, you know without uh, unprofitably. It's only propped up by subsidies. And at the moment in England, there's only about, well, about 0.5% of the land you could call rewilding and probably only about 4% that you'd call in good nature, nature friendly land uses. So that, so you're going from 0.5 to 5% and, 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 and from and presume- 4 to 25% of the rest. So, and- so that is a long way to go by 2030. It is, and and presumably that's coming out of that seventy or seventy one percent that's agricultural land. In, uh, well, and, not in just that, UK. because in addition to agricultural, land, there's of course a lot of wood. You know, there's what is it, thirteen yeah. percent woodland. So you know, quite a lot of woodland could fit into either the five or the twenty five. So on that, how much of you know, if we if we were to go back a couple of hundred years ago, and imagine most of Britain was actually you know covered in trees. I mean, you, you have to back, go back a little bit further. No, I no, you got that. yeah, you got to go well, back quite well, a lot further. I mean, back this, to the Middle this Ages. Landowner, this landowner yeah. I'm dealing with here. They've been here for over a thousand years, their family. Mm. Um, right. So, and, they, and and this will have been grazed in part for a very long time, centuries. Um, so, but but remember this: it is not about turning the clock back. This is a common misconception. Mm. Mm. This is about trying to create a resilient landscape that's fit for the future. And in order to do that, we've got to restore biodiversity, and we have to be able to cope with future climate warming. Well, you, you, you say, Alistair, I'll take you up on that point, because you say it's not going back to something. But there is a sense in which when you talk about the, the ecosystem, and you mentioned that perhaps we won't have bears and slight question mark, perhaps about lynxes and wolves, um, because that is what we think was here at the point where humans had their first impact. So there is a sense of reaching back into history because we could just develop an ecosystem here, I suppose, pick and choose where we want, bring in hummingbirds and eagles and God knows what, um, and, and say that'll be fine for us. But there is a sense of going back in all this, isn't there? Yeah, but you, you, we didn't have 60 million people in this country then. We've got, to be, we've got to be realistic about what's achievable. And it is definitely achievable to restore biodiversity to, to uh, a level that it was at say a hundred years ago, pre-war, you know, before 
we started mm. on this drive post-war, quite understandably, and this is really important, nobody here is blaming farmers. We, uh, Yes, policy, government policy, has a lot to do with the condition of the land now, and, and that partly actually driven by the common agricultural policy. But, you know, we're not saying it's farmers' fault. Farmers did what governments uh, advised them and funded them to do. And that was... Yeah obviously the thing to do post-war, but now it's gone too far. And we're now past, you know, we're now in a place where we're causing more harm than good. And we need to, we need to restore that balance. And it's up to governments now to, to kickstart that recovery by properly incentivizing it. But I can understand that, you know, there would be some animosity from farmers, but given that, you know, their challenges obviously are to try and make money out of the land and they want to try, you know, and they'll, they might need subsidies, to do that but you, you I mean you, you referred to the population I mean 69 million in 1800 it was 9 million so we yeah. are you know in a it's completely a massively different, different ballpark yeah. <laughs> and we've got all these people to feed yep. uh, we don't we don't seem to want and to house I mean don't forget and, housing areas new and, builds there yep. uh, so we that's, don't seem why, to... that's why we're only talking about 5% core rewilding and like right. I say you could easily do that without impacting on any of those issues and um, how does it when you're talking about an ecosystem I mean what about the boundaries of those ecosystems so you know you, you might have an area which is rewilded but if it's just on the outskirts well, that's of Birmingham what I, that's what I was explaining about the need to have it buffered and connected mm. by Mm. you know nature friendly land uses which are also producing food and tim but, but, but it's a small island and so even with buffer areas something that happens in birmingham you know some chemical cloud or whatever disperses over a very wide area welsh hill farms and everything else yeah. it's very hard to actually make much in the way of boundaries yeah, we'd like to see these things sort of blurred, blurred edges. And in fact, that's the reality. That's what's happening. Because, you know, what we have got now on the Rewilding Britain, and you see on the Rewilding Britain website, you know, there are over 70 case examples now. And I've got probably another similar number under the radar that are already doing this. And some of those have quite stark cutoffs between the rewilding. In fact, in this in this, um, this state I'm, I'm working on here at the moment, um, you can see fields side by side where one field is intensive sheep grazing and the next field is rewilding, planted with trees, rough grass and uh, teeming with wildlife. So, so yes, there are going to be some situations where it's kind of feathered and blurred and some situations where it's quite a stark cut off. And the former is the preferable situation, but that's not a reason for not doing it. And what about the stuff that grows in these rewilded fields, these weeds that then the sheep next door perhaps put their heads through and eat or they spread over there and die? Because some of these weeds, some of naturally occurring weeds are not good for wildlife. We know that. Um, well, a weed is not good for, 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 for sheep and cows to be, as you probably know when you referred to your garden earlier. Um, so these are plants. These are, in the main, native wild plants. And uh, basically, nature knows what it wants. You know, feed, plant, animals that feed on, feed on certain plants and not on other plants. And there is, there is not an issue around having species that are a problem to wildlife, apart from a few a very small number of invasive plant species. Um, and in rewilding sites, generally speaking, there will be some control of things like Japanese knotweed, for example. But generally speaking, if you're operating at scale, you can allow nature to address the balance. 
So how different is this to, you know, the, the approach where we, when we tend to think about what do we do with the management of land, we tend to think, well, we need to try and absorb carbon as much as possible. Yes. So let's plant trees because they absorb carbon. Let's just do lots of that. Let's, you know, let's not worry too much about biodiversity. Let's just try and get our carbon footprint down. So and it's easy for people to understand that because we see that as being a problem. When we start to look at biodiversity, I imagine this, you know, you're probably getting a bit of scepticism from, well, for me, perhaps more than Roger. We're being devil's advocates, obviously. But I mean, there there will be scepticism from people saying, well, biodiversity is a great thing, but aren't we well past that? What we actually need to do to save the planet is just get our carbon footprint down. And that takes management rather Uh, than... No, there's no excuse for just taking a single issue. It is quite easy, and I've been involved in hundreds of projects that have done it, to deliver multiple benefits. So this project here, yes, we're planting a lot of trees but we're also restoring a huge amount of native wildflower grassland and we're also restoring some moorland peaty moorland there's no reason whatsoever why you can't deliver multiple benefits and because you're working with nature on rewilding projects and you're working at scale it's it's pretty easy to deliver multiple benefits Mm -hmm. in a in in an individual site when you when you start if you go down the route where oh we're just gonna we're just going to sequester more carbon. That's when you end up with these Sitka spruce plantations, which deliver virtually nothing for other ecosystem services. And they don't create jobs and they don't provide opportunities for health and well-being. Mm. They are just literally uh, sequestering carbon and producing well, timber. And that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's not good enough, quite frankly. We, yeah, I- we can easily deliver multiple benefits if we just use a bit of imagination. Just, just give us a sense, Alistair, of what it's going to be like. One of these rewilding sites, like the one you're working on, in a few years, I don't know, 10 years, whatever the length, the lead time is, to get it to a point where you feel it is, you're able to step away from it. I mean, is it just like an overgrown, inaccessible swamp of deep forest, something you can't really get into? Perhaps there are, I don't know, wolves there, maybe certainly beavers. I mean, what are we actually talking about? What will this be like? It'll be a mosaic. Um, that's the first thing to remember that... Um, We weren't covered in forest historically. Yes, there was a hell of a lot more woodland in this country than there is now, but we had large herbivores here for, you know, many centuries ago. There were big herbivores which were bashing things up, eating things, churning up the ground. So, yes, we would have a lot more woodland, which is what we're going to have here. We're going from from 6% cover to uh, probably closer to 20% cover here on this particular land in Yorkshire. Um, so you're going to see a lot more woodland, but you're going to see mosaics of woodland, grassland, wetland, ponds, and there will be people in this landscape. There will be people working. There already are more jobs here on the back of this. There are going to be far more people utilising this site than ever used it before when it was just sheep grazed pastures. So yes, so what are those, Homo sapiens, what are those people- this is a really important point, guys. Homo mm. sapiens is a species that belongs in this environment just as much as a as a woodcock or or a brown trout or an otter, you know, we belong here. The challenge is, can we belong here without degrading it for future? So there'll be restrictions on what on what humans can do there. I mean, you know, you can't just, I don't know, make a path, build a hut. There are, you know, there'll be limits to what you can do in that landscape. So you say, and in, in that environment you're describing now, so what are the, the humans who are working there on that land, what are they doing? Um, well, I can give you, I'll give you examples from... A range of projects. So what 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 we're seeing is, first of all, in all these sites, because of the absence of these 
big grazing animals we once had, you still need proxies. So live, livestock, particularly rare breed cattle. So you need somebody to look after those. You still need a farmer type person. But what we're often seeing is a, that we're getting a stockman who is also an ecologist, who is also a, a nature guide, somebody who's skilled in all three because they don't, they're not full-time farmer. They're not a full-time ecologist. They're doing a bit of everything. So that's a job that is starting to appear. Um, you, you, then you've got, particularly in the early years, you've got quite a lot of work to do, a lot of tree planting. The guys here, I just met with them this morning, the, the, um, the contract team on site, they're busy preparing the ground for 70 hectares of wood pasture that we're creating, where we're planting scattered trees in grassland, um, which is uh, quite, a, quite a familiar habitat in parts of Europe. That We're restoring that, and there's jobs to be done there, not only planting the trees, but actually making sure that they meet the the requirements of the grant and survive for up to 10 years. And then there are jobs associated with health and well-being, education. Uh, we're just talking to a guy this morning about starting to run nature tours here, showing people around and maybe running um, classes also indoors to help people learn more about nature. So there's so all these sort of spin-offs that come right. through this multidisciplinary but, approach. But they're not living off the land type jobs, are they? These are jobs which need to be somehow. What do you mean living somehow. off the land? What does that mean? Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not, if you were to place ourselves in a, a point in history where that was the, you know, that was the land that we had and and that was the environment, oh, that was the ecosystem. No, no, it's, yeah, not a subs- no, it's not a subsistence existence. You couldn't, in the rewilding land, yes, you produce some food, but you still need to sell that food to make mm. money. Mm. Um, but then that's what farmers do anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's the, so how do we compare with other parts of the world then? So, I mean, if you look at, obviously there's parts of Europe which are largely forest, like I think Sweden's about, you know, three quarters forest. So that presumably is, is an environment as it has been for, for centuries. Well, believe it or not, it was incredible. I was amazed to find this. Belgium has a greater tree cover than we do, greater percentage (laughs) of tree cover than we do. Um, We are actually one of the lowest tree cover countries in Europe. And um, I think we could easily get to, at the moment we're around 12%, I think maybe 11% in England. We, we right. could easily get to 20% if we if we wanted to. Now the government's creeping up with its targets. I can't remember what it is at the moment, but it might be 13 or something. But, um, but presumably that, but presumably, because because all of our land has been, you know, has been allocated, is owned by somebody, and it a lot of it is agricultural. I mean, we have more agricultural land than than most countries. Presumably, elsewhere, there is land which isn't owned by. It anybody. depends. It, it depends on the country. Some is state owned, but don't forget, mm. lots of land here is owned by government bodies. So the Forestry mm. Commission and. Um, the MOD, for example, the MOD yeah. is one of the largest mm. landowners in the country. Well, um, and I, yeah, you know, that, would, that would be perfect. Then, wouldn't that MOD land would be absolutely perfect for rewilding because it's it's not being used that often, and it's an expansive land that's uh, well, it is pretty wild anyway. Uh, generally speaking, yeah. And I am um, talking to the MOD, and we're we're trying to find ways in there. But basically, modern day training needs don't really need big open landscapes anymore, like they used to train for. So, so actually, having more tree cover in the landscape, I'm told by the contacts I've had, actually might suit their training needs. So, so you know, you've got to we've got to work with their priorities. But I actually think that getting more scrub and trees back in some of these big open MOD ranges um, would would suit them anyway. So, what is the government's response generally to this? Are they putting enough money into it? Is the is it is enough <laughs> Never focus enough. happening? I mean, at the moment, there's not enough in the farming 
in the, the environmental land management scheme for farming as a whole. There's only about two billion pounds in there. And that sounds like a lot of money, but it's not um, when you consider 70% of the land is farmed. So that whole budget needs to be massively increased, really. If, we, if the government's serious about being the greenest government ever, which is what it claims, it's got to seriously inject a lot more funding into this. But also, the good thing is that there is private finance starting to kick in and the government needs to incentivize that as well. It needs to encourage that to happen. Right, but to get public support, I wonder whether it's a bit of a marketing exercise because I hear the term rewilding. I think of the English countryside and I think of, you know, it, it is largely manicured, isn't it? It's not manicured lawns, but you look at uh, fields with sheep and uh, grazing in them and it's beautiful the way it is. I think of rewilding. I think of the land being let go. I just think of overgrown yeah. weeds and, you know, not particularly pleasant to look at. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. And that is, you know, that is always a challenge. But we, Rewilding Britain, had a bit of a, we had a bit of a, a, a an, an exciting experience last year because we entered a rewilding garden into the Chelsea Flower Show and we won Best in Show and a gold medal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there we are. And that so really, like, that really uh, well, literally stole the show. And, yeah. um, and it was an amazing experience. But that was our way of, you know, demonstrating to the public, if you like, that, you know, it doesn't, it, wild can still look beautiful. And the they judges are. clearly That's, agreed, because as I say, we... we um, yeah. That's fantastic. Get me the application form. I'm going to enter my garden next well, year. Yes, I think, yeah. I think wild <laughs> isn't, isn't what I'd say exactly, more unkempt, but that's a different point. <laughs> Alistair, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, really good to talk to you. And uh, yeah, Phil now knows about rewilding, so you've achieved something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Talk. Bye. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, my only question over yes. that remains is telling a farmer yes. who's got land that is productive, even though it may not be terribly productive, or maybe they're getting a subsidy well, to make it productive, to tell them that to hand over that land and well, let, it, let it go loose. From what Alistair says, they seem, some at least, are willing, and, yeah. and, and, and long may it be so. But mm. um, anyway, we're going to look at something very different uh, next week because yeah. obviously you can't get away from what's been happening in uh, northern Syria and southern Turkey. The earthquakes, huge, appalling earthquakes earthquakes, vast mm. numbers of people killed. And what it set us to thinking is how possible is it to predict these things? Are they just acts of nature, acts of God that we well, can't do, we have to accept? Decades ago, this idea that there were, you know, things in the ground that were measuring movement mm. and uh, micro movements could predict yeah. bigger earthquakes. I mean, clearly that's not happened because the, these things yeah. do still seem to come out of the blue. Is that be, is that because those early warning systems only exist in parts of the, the world? In which case, can we just fix that sort issue? Yes. Well, there was uh, all this or, thing or about that, tsunamis after the big tsunami, of course, Boxing Day tsunami. 2004, where they, yeah. the, the idea that we can predict, if, if either predict them or at least say what has happened as the consequence and warn people. So there's lots of things like that. And also, you know, the human factor in this, should, do we simply need to build better in mm. these sort of areas? How do we take on board the thing we don't seem able to control or even predict? which is earthquakes, movements of the earth. Um, surely at the coming up to the early part of the 21st century, we should have the science, the technology to be able not to just shrug and say, sorry, that's what happened. You know, and increasingly it's a broader question than we'll probably tackle next week. But we, we you know, where people exist on the planet, I mean, some of them are more dangerous places to live than others. And, and yet uh, because of circumstance, people are there. Does it make sense to allow those populations to yeah. grow in areas which are dangerous areas to live? Or do we just shrug and say, you live there, you take the consequences? Mm. lot to talk about, and we'll be doing that next week. On The, on the y, y Curve, curve. brought to you by Wigmore Associates. See you next week. The Y Curve. <laughs>